Thank you, David. Uh, as we invite up our panelists uh, for our private investor headaches discussion panel, which we're going to start with here, um, I just want to make a couple quick comments. Um, one of David's approaches goes in line with how we've built the whole family office club is to provide value first. And then once you earn the respect of uh, a new potential client, then obviously it's easier to work with them in a larger way. And sometimes David talks about that quite a bit, how if he can help someone save uh, money on a project they're working on in real estate or on taxes, et cetera, obviously it helps them get a foot in the door. And uh, feel free panelists to come up while I'm talking just to, uh, to keep things moving. But I also want to point out that um, at our workshops, we talk about how you can add value first to investors through thought leadership, through uh, examples of how to structure their portfolio, through a webinar, through a podcast, et cetera. And a lot of people ask themselves, well, does that work? I thought this whole industry was based on a handshake and working your Rolodex and meeting face-to-face. -face. And the answer is it does work. And using these digital media assets, that's how you get more face-to-face -face meetings, uh, like David getting 44 clients from one referral source after being on the podcast, or meeting with a $20 billion family office that he connected with through the family office uh, club he's going to meet with on Tuesday, he told me over breakfast this morning. So uh, he's a good walking example of the strategies working, no matter what niche you're in. Uh, providing value first through ideas and good operating models is something families appreciate, whether it's on traditional uh, real estate or something like cannabis that's more, more new or something like tax planning. So. Hope you found it helpful hearing from David, and I'll hand it over to Andres now to moderate this panel. Thank you, Richard. Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for being here today with us, and uh, definitely an honor and a privilege to be able to moderate the first panel of the day. Um, really, what I like to start off with when I get up on stage the first time, I, I just like to see by a raise of hands who I have actually uh, had the pleasure of speaking with uh, in the past, if we've spoken even if it was just one time. Got it. Great. Fantastic. Um, so for our new members, definitely want to welcome you to our first event if this is your first event with us. If I could see a raise of hands if this is your first time at one of our Family Office Club events. Fantastic. If I could ask for a round of applause for, for our newcomers today. Thank you. Um, but today's panel uh, is, um, oh, and for those of you that don't know, my name is Andres Ospina. Um, I direct our membership division here at Family Office Club and also our marketing agency, PitchDex.com. I'll be out in the back uh, and then also here for a couple more panels later on throughout the day. Um, today's panel, uh, Private Investor Headaches, a discussion on the top problems, time wasters, and frustrations of active private investors. Uh, so I'm going to uh, give each of our panelists, uh, if you, you know, just to start off uh, a brief introduction on who you are, your firm, and, and kind of your, your target and your initiative. Um, let's keep it to a minute. We have six panelists here today. Same with the ongoing questions. Um, so we will start uh, with uh, you, uh, Ashish. Hi. Um, can you guys hear me? Yes. Yeah. It's Hi, it's Ashish here. Uh, I'm an angel investor, investing for about past four years in uh, various companies, primarily uh, focusing on software-only startups. Uh, some of my major investments have been uh, uh, Authy, which was acquired by Twilio, Zero Secure acquired by Palo Alto Networks, and Intellivision acquired by Nortec Securities. Uh, mostly I'm looking forward to uh, software standardization uh, as the ongoing uh, opportunity. GitHub standardizes code, Twilio standardizes how you send messages, 
and Stripe standardizes how you do payments. Uh, that's sort of the space I'm most excited about looking forward to. Fantastic, thank you. John? Uh, my name is John Murray. I um, worked for the Newhouse family in New York City for a bunch of years where we launched a direct investment fund. Um, we invested strategically, um, aligning with their media assets. They own Condé Nast and a bunch of uh, cable companies. Um, my background is I was a Wharton MBA and I've worked in Silicon Valley in finance for years. I'm currently a partner at Robertson Stevens where we have a multifamily office and we manage a little over a billion dollars. Um, we do a bunch of direct investing for our clients and that's how we differentiate ourselves in the landscape of uh, managers. Excellent, thank you. Hi, my name is Oleg Kuzikov. I'm a partner with Transformation Ventures, so VC is my day job. But I also do angel investments in companies that I like, but that might not necessarily fit our thesis. And uh, so I typically I focus on fo uh, enterprise, SaaS, that sort of thing. But uh, in terms of the sectors, I like FinTech, digital health, education. I'm Mike Lewis, and I'm the book guy, probably the only one that's poor up here. And uh, what I do is help people to establish themselves as thought leaders and the number one expert in their niche. Because our experience is it's much more important than they know who you are than it is what your deal is. Thank you. Uh, I'm Leo Patching. Um, I've been running an angel fund for about 10 years. Um, off that, have done a bunch of step-in um, interim roles and also um, launched a renewable energy investment fund. Hi, I'm Sri Ram Krishnan. That's not me, by the way. Um, <laughs> I currently work at Hitspin. It's a B2B SaaS company. I run product partnerships and marketing. I used to hit up uh, growth at Tinder. They acquired the company I was working at. I used to hit up new markets at Spotify. Co-founded a company that I sold. Um, also have an angel fund on the side. Uh, LPs include Bain Capital. TPG, Kleiner Perkins, and a bunch of other VCs. Uh, I've had a portfolio of about 75, 80 companies that have been investing for the past six years. Wow, thank you. Thank you so much. A round of applause for our panelists today before I start drilling them with questions. Um, I'll start off uh, with Batya in the end uh, and then kind of move it down the line. Um, so one of the things I definitely want to start off with, and all of you know, you, a lot of you mentioned um, partnering up in different funds and, and different initiatives. Uh, what would you say is the, the, where there's a massive inefficiency for you or your investor peers and when it comes to sourcing deals and conducting due diligence and then really monitoring them, especially if you're receiving a high volume of deal flow coming your way? I think uh, one factor there is pretty much everyone is doing their own due diligence and there is just no standardization around in the form of how to do due diligence and then either you do due diligence on your own or you basically reach out to your friends you trust and who have done due diligence before uh, for more information. I think that uh, industry can, uh, I, I hope something, some standardization could appear uh, in that form. So what you're saying is there's not much of like a standard due diligence process for you as the angel investor within the software companies you're looking at. It's just more, you know, whatever deal you feel sounds good to start with, you guys just kind of go about your own natural due diligence process? Well, ev everyone is doing on their own. Like, if, if, I, if I meet a company tomorrow and John and I both meet, we'll do our own due diligence and then we are reaching out to the same set of customers to verify what's going on. Are, are you really the customer? 
uh, is, is the contract really of the value they, they are claiming to be. So it, it's just a lot of repetition going on on that front in some ways. John? Yeah, I'd say one of the inefficiencies we see is if our clients bring ideas to us and we have to give them feedback because when you're dealing with the families, they're getting into deal flow themselves directly. And if we don't have a perspective on the landscape, so if it's cannabis and we're not with a point of view, you, it's not really helpful to isolate and look at a deal just by itself. You have to have a sense of the competitive landscape and you have to have a sense and a point of view on where you want to play in the landscape. And so there's really it's the, it's the landscape analysis that I think is probably one of the voids that you know, we, have to, we have to fill. And uh, is that coming from the person that's bringing you the deal where they're not bringing you that necessary information? Yeah, no, we, we have to fill that. That's not, yeah, we wouldn't expect them to bring us the landscape expertise. That's, we have to have a point of view on the landscape. And when you're looking at many, many verticals, you know, it's, it's not always sound judgment to just look at the company in isolation. Exactly. And what do you feel within the past three years, like slight changes that have made that have made it maybe a little bit more efficient, maybe not to where you want it to be, but I mean, internally, we have to do it. I mean, what we do is just we, you know, try to pick spots and, you know, you have to develop, from our perspective, we want to personally develop a theme. So you've got to have an area, you know, you care about software and so you're going to specialize in that. You're not going to go off your path. So it's having these themes where you have a point of view. Got it. Excellent. Thank you. Oleg? Well, I think the, the workflow itself is inherently inefficient, right? Because, uh, you know, you have maybe some deals incoming, so you have to look at them, maybe prioritize some of those. And something happens with one of your portfolio companies, so you have to kind of switch your attention. So I think it's very important uh, just to, to have a good and, and solid uh, time management and kind of prioritize where, you know, what are the hot spots you have to, where areas you have to pay attention immediately. Um, so yeah, the whole process is just uh, you know, a little bit inefficient in itself. And um, you said, because you're getting in deal flow, where would you say are some of those channels that you're getting deal flow from? I mean, primarily email? LinkedIn, yeah, sure. I mean, calls. lots of lots of cold cold opportunities come through this, you know, social media or through through email, um, network, personal referrals. That where you know there is always maybe uh, when there is a filter involved, you'll kind of always yeah. uh, act a little bit warmer to those. And I would say I'm also I like to be more proactive and look for the opportunities. Uh, I think that kind of, in my experience, typically brought uh, historically better outcomes and results. And um, is honestly, sp honestly speaking, across all the different channels, the referrals, when it comes to deals coming your way, right, what percentage do you think you're actually getting to the point of reviewing the pitch deck? 2%, 5 percent. 2%, 5 percent. 2%, 5 percent. Great. I actually did the math on mine uh, in the past one year. I think I've I've received about 800 to maybe 850 emails, out of which I've logged about 190 PDFs and presentations. Mm. So the remaining 600 have come unsolicited, and I just ignore, uh, unless it's through a trusted channel or someone with high signal or high trust. So if it's someone I don't know, I ignore because that's just the reality. And then um, out of the remaining 190 that I logged. I think I chatted with about 30 and invested in, invested in 10. So that's Got it. Invested in 10 out of the 800. Uh, out of the 800. Out of the 800 that came in, yeah, starting yeah, from the top of the funnel. 180 or 190 I logged. Yeah. Um, so I definitely want to dig a little deeper into that. 
because each step of the way there was that filtration process. Um, but you've definitely seen, like you said, uh, 600 of those were unsolicited people you don't know, right? But have you had a situation where someone has made multiple contacts, multiple points of contact, and then eventually become known on their own initiative without needing a third party to actually create that introduction? Yeah, I think there are all there, there are lots of channels that you can utilize to to sort of become um, to to be an unknown. So that's Twitter, that's LinkedIn. You can obviously establish your own thought leadership within a certain area and be known. Obviously, be known even before you like be known even before someone before you reach out to someone. So there are there are things that you can do with social media to enhance your thought leadership uh, in a specific field. And when, if and then, when you reach out, then you are far more likely to receive a yes, a chat versus no archive. So there are things that you can do uh, on the side, yeah. Great, and then from that 160 to the 30 you actually spoke to, what cut out those 130 people that never got a conversation? Yeah, I mean, it's 30, 30 35, 36. Um, I mean, the way I looked at it is, like there are three buckets, right? And this is just my perspective. There's two, three founders with an idea, there's two founders and an idea with some product. There's like founders with an idea and traction, right? So each set requires a different level of diligence. Um, and, and a majority of the deals that come in are in the middle with like two founders, a, a founder with a product with some beta, either in beta or in alpha. So, I mean, that's layer one, being able to bucket the founders and the companies in these three different areas. The, the second layer is, um, I mean, this is when, I mean, uh, sorry, when you clear 800 to 100, you obviously, I mean, people you don't know, you you're, you don't respond to. The ones you know, you say hi, bye, whether this is interesting. Yeah. Uh, but then you also try to figure out what your circle of competence is or your, whatever, your zone of genius. And then for the ones that you are comfortable, areas that you're comfortable with, the products that you're familiar with, in my case, products that are bought, companies that are founded. Um, these are areas that I'm comfortable with, so I'm able to assess much better, whether it's consumer subscription or SaaS. But if it's a satellite company and I've got no, absolutely no fucking way to evaluate this, then I just call a bunch of LPs and basically tell them, who, who are very familiar with deep tech, and tell them, hey, help me diligence this. So there are different yeah. ways for you to, to, to do that. Yeah, and pardon my French. No, excellent, thank you. Uh, is that Leo? Someone? Yeah, so um, to Ashish's point on standardization, um, we've definitely got more gun shy um, on the early stage investing in, in tech companies and uh, kind of that asset class because, kind of again, to your point on social validation, we've seen people become more sophisticated at giving a presentation of who they are that's harder to penetrate without deeper due diligence. And so assessing a high volume of deals it's harder to get to that third-party validation where I feel comfortable that this is now investing time. So we switched up some asset class investing to look at, kind of where I pivoted into renewables and um, real estate and other things as well alongside early stage, which I, I still enjoy the early stage investing and from trusted individuals take deal flow. But um, the kind of the further they are from my network, the more likely I am to ignore the email, even if I they're in my network because there's more of a social pressure to present deals to people and try and get things funded because um, there are a lot more people attempting to raise capital at earlier stages. Excellent, thank you. And Mike, uh, any feedback in terms of 
diligence and what yeah. maybe you've even seen amongst your clients and, and you guys Mike's fault for making yeah. people uh, you guys uh, might want to write this down this this is the first step in everybody's due diligence it's a little known process called Google, Google. and they Google you and what they're Googling you for is to find a reason to disqualify you not a reason to work with you so you've got to control your Google page uh, whether it's authorship speaking engagements videos the very first and second page when someone searches for you and your company better have nice things on it or you're dead in the water. I'd say way over 50% get killed at that stage. And that's of the ones they're actually considering. So control your Google. That's If you're not Googling yourself once a week, if you don't have a Google setting for any mentions of you and your business and your industry, you're making a huge mistake and you're never going to get in the game. So in my case, I'm a bit unlucky because my friend shares the same name and he shows up in the first page all the time. <laughs> I'm hey, in page two or three. I'm C. Mike Lewis because Mike Lewis is a professional swimsuit model that appears on the front cover of Cosmopolitan. <laughs> I, I can beat Mike Lewis that they do all the movies with, but not that kid. Uh, <laughs> all right. Um, so before we start opening up the, the question to the audience, uh, I'd also just really like to know directly, what, what's the I ideal type of asset or investment or fund that you're looking for now? Something that really comes to mind, something that, you know, what are these green flags that you're really looking out for to have you taken on to the next step? Um, you know, what would you like to see within the audience? And uh, we'll start with uh, Oleg. I, I guess the ideal deal for us my group uh, that I work with would be an opportunity where we could really add the most value, you know, to increase the market cap growth over the long run. That would be ideal. Uh, and the one where the interests of different parties come aligned, this type of situations, they tend to last longer and again bring better outcomes. And can you... Um Remind us of like the asset class and the industry that you well, uh, you know, it's maybe a, a, a post-product market fit software startup. Right, thank you, John. You know, I kind of defer to what, what Leo said a little bit because we, I, I filter out all the early stage stuff these days. I just can't. There's too much. The structures are too funny, and I've just given up when the mm. when the conversion structures kicked in. I went away and, and so I look for stage first, that's a way to filter for me and that's more growth equity stage, you know, more proof of concept, higher revenue, 10 million or so. Then it's team, you know, it's about the people at the end of the day, you've got to find a team that has executed in the past and that you believe in will execute again and then, you know, we do, we, we care about valuation so we're conscientious and we're not just chasing things. Um, you know, we don't demand being involved on boards and things like that, so we're more mm -hmm. flexible from that standpoint. And then, you know, what sectors do we care about? I mean, we love software and SaaS, and, um, you know, uh, we've just done some data center, in, you know, investment services inside the data center and software. You guys just invested in a data center? Yeah, said? yeah, yeah. Yeah, we, with, w it was uh, something that, uh, well, I'll tell you this, is like, I don't shy away from first-time funds. I like first-time funds. I like entrepreneurs that get into the business of then investing if they have some experience. And so we invested in a first-time fund that specialized in data center. What's nice about it is they, as a first-time fund, need co-investments because they don't have tons of money in that fund. So then we did a co-investment with them, and I think we committed $5 million to the fund. I think we committed $10 million to the co-investment. 
because we liked it and we got a better steak and we loved that one business that they that they brought to us. So that's how we got to it. Got it. And it was data center focused fund. It was data center focused fund out of the East Coast, yeah, Baltimore. Got it. Excellent. Yep. Uh, great. Um, Batia. So um, adding to what uh, uh, Sriram said, like I'm not comfortable with bucket one at all, where the founders are there, they don't have, they haven't decided what the what market they're going for, mm. or even more so if they have if they're having a full-time job and they will leave only after uh, they get funding. So uh, I really love the case where the founders have at least crystallized the market, and uh, I have some alignment with the market. I, I'm I'm a strong believer that market matters more than the founders, and. Uh, I usually love uh, when there is at least some traction, uh, but not something which I fixate upon in terms of investing. Uh, what I what I really love in terms of uh, as as a green signal is that the founders have some unique insights and have an existing working relationship with each other. Uh, surprisingly, fights are pretty common where founders fight each other six months after the funding has raised, and now uh, real money is at stake. Uh, relationships are at stake, and then uh, uh, those, those are the kind of uh, awkward scenarios uh, with bad financial outcomes which they try to avoid. And so what are you doing now to vet that type of more subjective point? Um, two things. One is uh, that the founders have been working with each other for a while, not in a big company, not as a part of a uh, team somewhere else, but in, 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 in a smaller group together working on the idea. So that's one. And second, what motivations do they have? And uh, I'm, I'm fine with any motivation. If someone is saying, I'm doing it only to become a millionaire, that's fine. If someone is doing it for some personal meaning out of it, that's fine. But I think the founders need to have a strong alignment with each other in terms of what the motivations are. If one founder is doing it for money and the other one is doing it just to have independence and not work for anyone else ever, then I think when an acquisition offer comes, it's going to lead to uh, a huge uh, clash of interest between the founders. And uh, I had a question for you, John. Kind of slipped my mind. So <laughs> we'll go to uh, Sriram if you can kind of elaborate on, um, you know, what you're currently looking for. Oh, actually, I do remember the question I had for you, John. What advice uh -oh. do you have for these early stages that you are totally not even given a chance? Like, what I, my advice is don't. I, I don't know. This is personal bias, I guess, but I don't like these convertible notes for early stage to then get to the price of the A at a discount. If I'm gonna put up real money at the early stage, I wanna own a chunk of the company. So, I mean, and I'll help and I'll work with them, but I don't wanna just give them the money and let them convert to the next round at a discount. Got it, got it. So there have to be like some, some yeah, real financing in there. Yeah. Just do it. And they can get convertible money, that's why it works. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just not for me. Yep, gotcha, okay, great. Um, yeah, so Suram, back to the question in terms of, of the industry focus, what you'd like, what you would like to see here, what would have someone in the audience actually be able to set up a follow-up meeting with you? Um, I think, well, um, that's a lot of questions. So <laughs> I, I focus on, I mean, a range of things. I've invested in satellite companies, consumer companies, enterprise companies, so I'm pretty much agnostic because my OP base is pretty agnostic and wide, so they're able to help me diligence a lot of deals and very high throughput and, and, and very quickly. But from what, I mean, I, I personally have also invested in a bunch of, so I invest across stages. I have an early stage VC fund. I'm also a full-time operator at a company, but I invest real estate, late stage uh, tech, and, and a bunch of other things that my family office manages. 
personally for me, what would be interesting is if you have, if you know any entrepreneurs who are starting companies, if uh, you're looking for in, you're looking for insights into how to navigate um, investing in early stage funds, I have lots of friends who are also operate of fund managers or early stage sort of first time fund managers, happy to talk about the early stage fund ecosystem even more. Uh, if, if anyone's interested as I mean, in, in this day and age, every Tom, Dick and Harry is setting up an angel fund, uh, capital is, uh, there's excess capital in the market and it's all trickling down. So it's important to understand how to differentiate one fund manager to another fund manager. Uh, I'm an LP myself in a few funds, so I've got my way, uh, my own way in assessing funds, so happy to chat about that. Great, excellent, thank you. Um, so I guess the uh, next question I want to do, probably the last one before I move on to some audience questions, um, are, are you guys using any types of new tools or softwares yourself in order to kind of organize yourself a little better, develop better systems, communicate with your team, you know, um, and uh, yeah, we'll s start with. Uh, my, uh, with Leo. Uh, yeah, so um, in the equity, when we invested in early stage companies, um, I really like cap table management software, so um, I encourage everybody to try and look at something like Carter, um, was eShares, they flipped, um, does provide some of the standardization and give, I mean, they can track convertible notes through to equity rounds, uh, issue share certificates, you actually get the governance and compliance done. Um, I find I found that really helpful. Um, on the real estate side, um, we've also used some tools there for kind of tracking how the actual payouts work, um, interest accruals, all that sort of stuff. Batya, since you're soft software side of things. Yeah, so um, I'd say I'm, I'm low-key in terms of managing, primarily using Google Sheets in terms of tracking uh, where I invested, what valuation I invested, what's the last update I received from the company, and then there's another tool, uh, Sevi, which I use for primarily it's a CRM on top of Gmail, which I use for uh, managing the deal flow so that uh, I'm as responsive as I want to be in terms of uh, getting back to the founders in time, uh, e even when I'm saying no. Got it. Uh, John? I mean, I, 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 this is, you know, I use PitchBook, the, the database, because it's just okay. got a lot of nice. data. It's handy, yeah. you know, it's convenient Excellent. for me. It's, it's got good contact information. Awesome. All right. Uh, we're using a regular CRM that uh, was dirt cheap, so it's uh, not a fancy investor catered CRM, but like, you know, I think $10, $12 a month, that's what we're paying. It's not ideal, but kind of quality price-wise, it's okay. Uh, we're seeing quite a number of our portfolio companies been using Carton lately. And on a personal note, um, I put together a, a team of scientific guys and we're working on uh, building a kind of an analytical tool, a homegrown one that would help us with decision making, maybe hoping it would give us some edge. Okay, great, excellent. Uh, Mike, if, I could, if you can elaborate on that. and Sure. Uh, the ones I've seen used the most and that we use are ones that will maximize your content. Uh, you should be able to post content in five or six places every time you create it. That helps your social media and it can be done in a very automated way. Uh, you need to stay top of mind with people, so meeting them once a quarter is not gonna get the job done for you. You need to be feeding them information on at least a weekly basis. And with our busy schedules, that means you need some automation. Okay. 
And um, back to Sri Ram really quick. I'm gonna this question. If you guys can just answer in, in ten seconds, I'm primarily the one that's very curious about this. But when it comes to receiving a pitch deck, you know, a one pager, looking over a website, looking at the social media pages of the companies that are reaching out to you, how important is it that they be of good quality, right? That they that you know that it wasn't just someone behind their PowerPoint you know, using their best of their ability, you know, basic Microsoft Office skills to put together the material, that they actually took time, invested into a good web developer, a good design team to make their pitch deck, to make their social media channels consistent with content. Like, how important is that to you? Um, I don't think it's important at all. I mean, I look at the substance, so I look at market, I look at product, I look at founders. I've invested in a company w with in a company that had no presentation, so it just a pitch came by email, and it was why this is a big problem, why we are the people who solve it. And I looked at the founder, he's done this before, so pr it was a pretty unique um, um, alignment, but I don't think it's that useful. I mean, uh, sometimes it could also be, it could also have the opposite effect, right, when you're putting so much attention to your presentation, but you don't have the substance, it may actually look bad on you, so I don't think it plays a role, but obviously something decent looking is always nice. Great, and ha the digital assets, having those in place? What do you, what do you mean digital like the assets? the website, social media channels, some content, not just blanks. I mean, at the end of the day, it depends on, again, which bucket, uh, which yeah, which yeah. stage. If you if you have a product, then I will test that product out. If you, if you have, if you are two founders and an idea and about to start a company, then, I mean, I'll look at your deck and your idea and how well you've been working together and so on. Great, Leo? Uh, quality of images that's not that relevant to me um, it's not a disqualifier if it's good or bad um, I'd primarily look for the content do you contradict yourself um, does it make sense do your numbers make sense um, team I, and for me very much digi digital assets wise uh, if you're very early stage and you're very prevalent on social it's not always a good thing to me um, not a terrible thing but uh, yeah I've early stage it's more about does it make sense? Is the market there? Um, do you have the chops and do your numbers make sense? Got it. And then for it to make sense, then it's definitely important that they focus on the flow, at least, of the way that the information is being delivered. Yeah, and on that, don't make it too long. Um, mm -hmm. Definitely a turnoff for me is like the 25 page decks, uh, kind of the whole, uh, you didn't have time to write a short letter thing, yeah. kind of. Can I remember who that quote was from? So just say it confidently. Mike? Okay. Uh, I disagree with both of them. I think it's mission critical that you have the, the most professional presentation that you can and that everything is congruent. These guys are killing deals that don't meet those criteria without even realizing they're doing it. Before they read about the founders, they're going to Google the founders. And they, whatever they say, they're looking for reasons to disqualify you. So professionalism and congruency, I think, are critical. <coughs> Oleg? Well, I would say I would look or pay close attention to the way the uh, content or the material is communicated. Mm -hmm. So because I wasn't going to spend five minutes trying to figure out what is this about. If I don't capture it, you know, I'll, I'll look at it two seconds, three seconds, and if I understand this, yeah, that's good, and I'll look more. But if I don't understand, I'll just move along. So it has to really have this its hook, its clarity yeah. of message, both Thanks. on the website or on presentation. 
nice bells and whistle, nice pictures, that's, that's secondary. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, I'm content and how it's communicated um, rather than the presentation. I am later stage too, so I want to see a product demo and I want to go right to the product and talk about the market. Great. So um, I do care about one, the pitch deck and uh, e even small things in the pitch deck like are there spelling mistakes and I, I do pass judgment on those things. Other thing I do care about is clarity. Not so much in terms of how beautiful and fancy it is, but yeah. am I able to get what market is this startup operating in in the first three slides? If I don't get that, then I, I have already form, formed a judgment in terms of not investing in it. Uh, in terms of uh, other websites, I, the only thing I care about is uh, LinkedIn profiles of the founders. I think uh, it's definitely a good idea to have a professional uh, presence on LinkedIn just so that be because others are passing judgment on you and uh, the deal flow ratio forces everyone to prioritize rejection as opposed to uh, selection. I'd also urge everyone to look at Airbnb, Uber, the last 20 companies that have IPO'd in the past five years, look at the pitch deck. It was done by two-year-olds. So, I mean, again, I look at substance, not style. Uh, yeah, and to that point, I mean, two-year-olds that can keep it very simple and then communicate the message really well. So definitely aesthetics, I would definitely say, are definitely second to making sure that you have a clear, concise, brief presentation that covers all the points and is not overly scattered, um, which is why. But then, of course, on the aesthetic side of things, down to a subconscious level, no matter what, things that are visually appealing are gonna catch our attention for just that much longer. And that could be the difference. So, uh, do we have any questions from the audience before we wrap up the first panel of the day? Great, uh, FW. How about the financials, the projections? How, how do they measure in? Projections uh, depends on the stage again. Um, I like, it's kinda as they, the very early stage stuff, I like when people break out the unit economics, um, shows they've done some thinking, they're not just throwing up a hockey stick. Um, numbers as well, I like use of proceeds. Um, even if it's broad, I like you to have actually thought about where's the money going, how's the return gonna be kind of generated from that. Um, and on, on projections, the key thing for me is if I get to a conversation, have an understanding as to the assumptions and the drivers that go into that, and the person who I'm speaking to, not oh, I'll, I'll get back to you when I've spoken to my co-founder or something. You need to understand what drives the numbers that you've presented, why that goes that way, because it's obviously not gonna go that way, and you need to be able to tweak and move the levers to adjust as that happens. I'll add to that. Uh, in terms of uh, numbers, I ignore all the financial projections, especially because I'm looking at early stage. Uh, the, the only thing I'm looking at it is how big is the overall market uh, the, the startup is operating in, and the other factor is, do they have some form of a moat? So um, I think it doesn't matter whether I'm investing at five million valuation or 15 million valuation. If they have some form of a moat, I know they, if they execute well, they can get to 100 million valuation easily. If anything beyond that is icing on the cake. Thank you. Uh, the gentleman over here. Your name, sir? Uh, yes. Um, Salam. Yes. Salam, great. Um, my name is Jason Ma. Congrats, congratulations to all your success here. Um, now, if there's one thing that may not be working for you, or if there's one thing that you'd like to improve on, professionally or even personally, because it might be a holistic way, what would it be? I'm gonna put John on the spot, start him <laughs> with that one. <laughs> which, which thing should I refer to? <laughs> um, 
you know, for me, it's probably time management and, uh, you know, balance of life and, and just, you know, time, you know, just the keeping things balanced. I mean, we have to hire people. We have to, you know, there's a lot of constituencies we have to deal with. And so um, it's really managing the time and, and staying focused in, in the moment with people that you're dealing with. I would throw in, for me personally, it's attention span. Because there's so much stuff going on. It's really very hard to stay focused, and that's probably that would be a very helpful and disciplined skill to have. That's great. Recency bias. Um, Sorry, repeat that. Recency bias. So, kind of assuming that the uh, the past predicts the future. Mm. Obviously, irrelevant. But um, I I find myself having recency bias and looking for what's been rather than kind of tapping into where it's going. For me, it's, I just should do more on social media because that guy is <laughs> constantly <laughs> like pipping me all over. Like, no, yeah, but I mean, I, I'm not my friend too. I mean, I'm I, I'm active on social media, but not as active on Twitter as I want to be. But but I mean, yeah, and all of that. Great. Uh, adding me. to the recency bias, I would say uh, purely the amount of noise which goes on. Like right now, the whole bike sharing, scooter sharing space is such a huge noise in some ways. Mm. Uh, so ignoring that is a pretty hard thing. For me, it's qualifying and dialing in the people that I personally want to do business with. Excellent. Thank you for the question, Jason. Great question. Uh, so with that, if we can please give a round of applause to our first panelist of the day.